I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am Andy Johnson, and this is another edition of the Yoke with Doke. So Tom uh, was gracious enough to catch up with me. We, have, uh, we haven't talked in a while uh, on the podcast. Uh, I think we've both been very busy. Uh, Tom more so than me. He has uh, a ton of new projects to chat about, and we dive into it. Just as a little programming note, we we talk for about two hours, so this will be part one of the conversation, and we will be releasing part two this week. Um, with it being Thanksgiving week, I figure everybody's got a lot of travel on their hands. Uh, this will get you through that, and uh, it should be should be a pretty fun conversation. A quick reminder. We have our Black Friday sale going. It starts on Tuesday of Thanksgiving week and runs till the Tuesday after Thanksgiving week. If you use the code Black Friday, you'll get 20% off everything in the pro shop uh, outside of events. So that, that promo code is Black Friday. Meg has done a tremendous job getting the pro shop really stocked with a wide range of different styles, uh, different things. It's, it uh, obviously is a big part of what we do here is, uh, you know, in helping us continue to put out all the content that we want to do. So thank you to everybody that has supported us through the years. And uh, if you're in the market for some gifts uh, for a loved one or a gift for yourself, check out our Black Friday sale at uh, proshop.thefriday.com. Without further ado, let's get to Tom Doak, and uh, part two of this conversation will be posted later this week. All right, Tom, uh, we're back. It's been been a number of months. I feel like uh, we've both been very busy, but you've definitely been more busy than me. Uh, I got to ask, have you, have you had any travel problems this year? Uh, not too bad, really. I've gotten stranded in the airport once or twice, but you know, that's about par for the course for me out of 30, 20, 30 trips. Um, and no, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been a little easier because mostly I'm traveling in America. You know, I don't have any 30 hour flights to deal with. That's, that's a welcome change of pace. Yeah. I, I always, I don't, I never complain about travel. Like, uh, you know, if I get a bad, you know, something bad happens because I, I really believe in like the travel gods. And, and this year yep. I had like the worst thing I had happen was like I had a few flights where my 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 computer didn't plug in. And I was like, OK, this, these aren't big problems. I'm not I'm not upset about this. And I'm going to, you know, and, and it was a great year of travel for me. So it was like, yep. you know, I saw tons of people who had trouble and I did not. Um, let's start. Uh, we got a ton of listener questions, which is obviously the basis of this pod going back six years or so. 
Um, I want to get to them and we'll weave in kind of all your new projects through a lot of these questions. Um, but this is a fun one that we got from get a, get a hole one. When was the last time that you played one of your golf courses with random people that didn't realize you designed the course? Has that happened? Oh yeah. So yeah, a bunch of times. Cause I don't, you know, if, if I do meet up with some random person, I'm not the kind of person who's going to be like looking for recognition. And I know that I'm much more likely to get some real, like honest feedback if I don't tell them right away who I am. So, um, I played with an Asian couple at Barnboogle one of the times I was there, which was great fun. They'd never been on a Lynx course before in their lives. And like, after two or three holes, I had him using the backboards, but I still didn't, I didn't tell him until like we made the turn. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's why I know a lot about the golf course. Um, but the funniest one, I, the last time I was at common ground was, uh, was kind of right, right after the pandemic, I was out, uh, looking at something out that way. And I just stopped in a common ground late in the afternoon, like just in time to maybe get in 18 halls before dark. And, you know, I, I, you know, went in the pro shop and said hi and just, just went off by myself, but there was, there was like a three ball in front of me. So after a couple of, you know, I hit a good shot on the second hole right up close while they were still standing on the third tee. So they waved me up and we're going down the third fairway and and I saw that one of the guys had a bag with a Bally Neal tag on it or something like that. And I, and I mentioned that and he said, oh, yeah, I'm a big Tom Doak fan. <laughs> but he did not recognize me. <laughs> so I, I let that go for at least two or three holes before I before I told him who I was. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Um, and you, you mentioned like real feedback. Do you have anything that you remember where somebody said something that stuck with you that didn't know who you were um no not like any great architectural insights just more their takeaway from the golf course you know is it you know what's the first word out of their mouths is it fun is it difficult is it interesting you know just that kind of feedback is nice to get and you don't really get that very much normally you know every you know i talked to a bunch of writers who want to analyze things more in depth than that. And that's not really how the average golfer is going to experience it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, I, I would agree with that, you know? Um, all right. Joel Anderson writes, uh, since writing anatomy of a golf course in 1992, what changes would you make to the book after 30 years of experience? Would you prioritize certain topics more now than you did then? No. I mean, just like my own golf courses, I don't really want to go back and rewrite books and, and edit them. And, you know, I don't think my philosophy has changed very much. Um, you know, I'm a better architect because I've got more practice building things. That's the part where we keep getting better. But the ideas are still the ideas. They've kind of always been the ideas. <laughs> and maybe there's pieces of it I could do better at editing and condensing a little bit that is a pretty dense book for a beginner I'm I'm really surprised how many times people compliment me on it because it does get pretty technical at times in the middle of it 
but overall i'm really happy with the book it still you know it sells better now than it used to i guess that's because people know me more um but i'm really happy with that book i don't feel the need to rewrite it at all all right all right all right with a high point we'll go back 30 years uh 30 plus years uh and you're back rebuilding high point uh it's got eight holes from the original design and um you you guys have finished shaping all of them if i'm correct right we finished shaping everything and we actually seeded all the holes this fall although quite a few of the newer holes were seeded so late that you know we were hoping for a a really long nice fall like we had last year to get some growth on those but i i suspect several of those holes will have to be reseeded next spring um you know, you always take the chance and go ahead and try to seed everything and just see if it'll catch. Because uh, as Pete I said to me the first time we were working on a high point, we were getting near the end of the year and we didn't have irrigation in on all the holes. I actually called him for advice and said, you know, we're not going to have time to get all the irrigation in. Should I try to seed these holes or not? And Pete I and his infinite wisdom said, seed doesn't grow in the barn. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we used to do before we had a lot of your big irrigation systems just put it out there and see if it'll grow yeah. um that's a good that's a good one-liner what surprised uh you most about high point part two so like what has surprised you about the whole project the most and that's from c pressed i don't know if i'm surprised by high point i mean i i did feel a lot more pressure to get out there and do some of the shaping myself. And, and it certainly interrupted my rhythm at home. You know, normally when Brian Slonick and I are working on project, we're away working on the project and then we're home and we're home and we have time for our families. And this summer wasn't like that at all. We, you know, we were, are we going to be home for dinner? We're not sure. You know, we might work late. That doesn't go over well. <laughs> um, so it was that was a tough summer um, just for, you know, getting out of our comfort zones while we're home, uh, which we don't really it's taken a long time to get in a comfort zone as much as we travel. Um, but, you know, overall, I'm really happy with the golf course at the same time. You know, I'm kind of curious to play these new nine holes and see. If I like them as much, you know, I'm happy with all the holes, but would we have had more cool features if I'd had all of my crew working on that, contributing their little ideas like they do on all of my other projects instead of it having to all come from me? And personally, I think it would probably be better if I'd had all that help, you know, People always assume all the ideas are mine, and that's not really the way we work. And and I hope this course doesn't show that in a bad light. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I mean, I I would hate for anybody to read my writing without uh, Garrett from our team or Brendan from our team editing it. It would be it would be revealing. I guess people from way back might remember that. You know, it's like the right. same type of thing with writing, right? It's like if you if you don't have your editor you or you know, team of editors. I I like that's 
And it makes sense. I think it makes sense completely because if you think about the great golden age courses, so many of them were built through collaboration and architects weren't as, as competitive then. And in a way your associates act as, as the, you know, you know, obviously the historic story of like the Philly school acted where they all shared ideas. They would come visit their site in a way your, your associates are kind of like that. Right. Yes. They're they're a huge part of what I do and they always have been. And, you know, and we like having all these young guys around who are getting their first taste of it because they 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 bring such enthusiasm to the project. It's like it's never just another project to them. And, um, you know, they may not give me a great idea of how to shape the ninth green. They shouldn't really expect to do that at this point in their lives. But just being out there every day and being another set of eyes on the thing to say, you know, that the right, that back right corner doesn't really look right. Um, you know, um, most of my jobs, I've got a half a dozen people with real talent out there looking at everything we're doing every day. And that's why they turn out that well. Speaking of that, I noticed this at the, at your Renaissance cup about a month ago where you had, a you know, you had everybody that was really involved with the with the Lido project there. I couldn't help but notice the the youth wave on your staff. What's it been like having uh, so many new young people involved? And have you noticed anything different about the way they think about golf architecture? Um, or well, talk about it. Um, the unfortunately, I don't get to spend as much time with them as I'd like. You know, mm-hmm. I try to make room for at least to have every one of them like shadow me for a day at some point when I'm there during the process. Uh, but there, there has been a youth movement. We've kind of done it in waves over the years. You know, I've always had this internship program, but you can't really have too many interns unless you've got a design project coming up in the summer, a construction project coming up in the summer. So you'll have something for them to do. You know, it doesn't make sense to have them all sit around my office looking at each other, <laughs> trying to draw routing for something. So, you know, coming out of the pandemic and getting started on Lido, We've trained up a lot of people to the point that, you know, 10 years ago, those people helping us were Blake Conant and Clyde Johnson and Angela Moser. And now they're running projects. And we, you know, we need another generation of people who are kind of starting at the bottom and we don't have to pay them a fortune and, you know, let them be out there and contribute a little bit. So, so we had five interns for the Lido and two or three of them that came back for the second year. And, you know, Brian Schneider's had a couple of them under his wing since then working on old Barnwell and some of the renovation things that he's doing. So we had to get a couple more to help with Sedge Valley. And um, there's some real talent there, like there always is. And it's exciting to see them starting to learn how to actually build things. and and be helpful instead of just having an opinion. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> They're helpful <laughs> instead of just having an opinion. Well, uh, that's the thing. I mean, you know, I meet so many people that are interested in golf course design and want to work for me. And that, you know, their idea of working for me is that they're going to walk around behind me all day <laughs> and help me think through everything. Yeah. And it's like, 
everybody would like to have that job. Especially right out of the gate. <laughs> sure. And I don't know what I expected the day I went down to start working for Pete Dye at Long Cove, but it did not take me more than half a day to figure out, okay, he doesn't really need that much help thinking through how to design this thing. He needs help building it. That's what everybody's out there for. And that is the most important part of it. You can It doesn't matter how many great ideas you've got if you can't build them. And that building process takes so long and takes so many people that that gives everybody else a chance to contribute and make it better, which you're not going to do sitting in the office. Well, it's what you just said about High Point and like what you are worried about is that you didn't have as many people helping you and you worry about like the cool stuff that you might have missed out on by not having everybody there, right? And Right, which is not to say I didn't have any help. I mean, Brian Slonick was there from start to finish and kind of polishing up everything I did and making it better. Um, we aren't We aren't just going straight off my last bulldozer push to a finished green. Except for the couple of greens that I did just say, no, we're just going to keep these contours that are right here. Let's just map that and put it back together. And then I had Matt Hunter, who was an intern for us at Streamsong years ago and worked on several construction projects for us, but eventually got out of the business and moved back to Traverse City and you know, got married and has a little family now. He's been he's been working here in Traverse City for the last 10 years. But he always said to me, if High Point ever comes back, I'm going to quit my job and work on High Point. And sure enough, as soon as they started talking about putting it back, he was like, yeah, I'm serious. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so he was on the crew all summer and, you know, good enough on a bulldozer that he was the one with actually with the daughter of the engineer for the project who put the greens back together and put the mix in and got them floated out again with the GPS unit. So they were right, which saved both me and Brian a ton of time. And, you know, they did a great job. So it's not like I didn't have any help, but I didn't, you know, most of the famous courses I've worked on in the last 20 years, Bally Neal or Terra Edie or wherever, you know, you've got at least four or five greens on those golf courses that that was really Brian Schneider's idea or Eric's idea or Kai Golby's idea, you know, with me editing them a little. And that's, you know, it's different when all the ideas have to come straight out of me. That's the part that I'm worried about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess. Yeah. The, my, my point was the, where people can help is in the field. That's where they get to input, put their ideas, right? Imprint their ideas. And, uh, you know, very little comes from just walking behind you, right? All right, let's talk about our sponsor, Club Champion. Uh, Club Champion has been with us, and, and they have an awesome offer. So, for those that aren't aware of what Club Champion is, Club Champion is really the premier club fitter in America. They do they're international as well. Uh, they have the most sophisticated uh, fitting technology. You go in there and you get a effectively a PGA Tour level fitting for anybody. With that, they have an awesome offer um, for Black Friday. 
you can get a entire full bag club champion fitting for a hundred dollars with an equipment purchase or any other fitting type for just fifty dollars with an equipment purchase when you book your fitting from the 13th of November through the 4th of December. All of these fittings must be completed by uh, January 31st, 24 to apply. And the promo code must be applied at the time of, of fitting. So use the promo code FRIEDEGG. You just got to go to clubchampion.com um, and then you you book your fitting. Use the promo code FRIEDEGG and you get their best offer, a $100 full bag fitting or a $50 fitting uh, uh, for any other club type. So you just want to get wedges done as 50 bucks uh, with a club purchase. Uh, they have been an awesome partner and they got me an awesome set of glo- golf clubs. I'm playing really good golf. And I think part of it is that I have a really well fit golf bag. I've been using them since all the way back to my high school days when they were starting in Chicago, when they had one location, that's where I was going. Um, so really great brand, uh, somebody that I've, I've worked with my, my entire, really my entire golf life. So go to clubchampion.com, use the promo code Friday to redeem this offer. And, uh, now back to Tom Doak. So one of the unique things about your some of your new holes, uh, and you posted this on Instagram at High Point, is the choose your own adventure routing between three and four. And Ryan Book asks, how far do you think this concept could go? I think explaining how it works would be great. How far do you think this concept could go? Um, do you think a, a course could have a few similar situations? Uh, like, could you do this multiple times at, at a course, or could an entire course? be where you that your next t is determined by the green you choose well for starters you know i came up with that idea very late in the process of building the golf course we were down to building the shape in the last three or four holes and we had all the all the other part threes were kind of medium length and i was trying to decide whether to make number three really short or really long and i asked rod trump his opinion and he said I kind of like short. And I said, well, so do I. But the hard thing about doing a really short part three is you want to build a really small green. And the superintendent doesn't want us to build a 3,500 square foot green. You know, he's going to say that's going to be hard to keep in perfect shape every day if we're doing 15,000 rounds down the road. So, you know, Tom Fazio used to do it quite a bit on his golf courses back in like around 2000. Shadow Creek had one and Pelican Hill had one where they built two greens on a hole so they could build a small green for one of those two greens. That was the whole idea. Um, and, you know, so that was the start of this was like, OK, we'll we'll build the small green for the really short hole, but then we'll build a you know, we'll build another green on the par three that's a much longer hole and have a decent sized green for it too. And then there'll be plenty of green space, even though both the greens are fairly small if they were the only one. And that longer green pushed against the tees for the next hole. So you don't have to play the short tee, the short green for the par three, and then the long tee for the par five. You could obviously walk forward and you could stand, you could stand on the back tee for the par five while people were playing the long par three and not get hit. But 
it does make more sense for flow to just combine them. When you play the short par three, you play the long par five. When you play the long par three, you play the short par five. And because one of the things that somebody's going to ask me at some point is, well, how do they get a good course rating in a slope if you've got these two different options? We're going to have to re rate it separately from all the T's. But I think, you know, this kind of balances that out. If they use it the way I'm describing, you're playing two holes that add up to 750 yards or whatever, that's going to come out pretty much the same in the slope system, no matter which way you rate it, I think. So I'm hoping that discussion goes away because the last thing we need is like multiple sets of combo tees plus different greens. So it'll be fascinating to see after like a year of play, what like, the averages if if they track it what the average is of going short long so short par three long par five versus long par three short par five like it's going to be fascinating does it change year by year and and then you know is there are there certain types of players like you know if this level of of i i think this is it's a really interesting concept the idea of allowing people to choose like effectively what you're doing is allowing like human decision into something, which always makes things more interesting, you know? Right. At the same time, you know, I'm a golf designer. Usually my job is to choose the best combination. That's, that is the job. That's what we do. Try to figure out which of those holes is better. Which of those two combinations is better. In this case, because of wanting to do the really small green, I opted to do it this way. But yeah, I've done something like this a couple times before. You know, like Pacific Dunes has the the alternate greens yeah. for nine and the alternate tees for number ten, and they kind of work together. You don't really have to keep the combination the same, but I like that way of using those. Uh, the loop obviously has all kinds of different combinations and permutations to it. Um, I've seen it in other places like Tom Watson's design for that course at Kesiki or whatever it is. It, I don't know how you pronounce that in, in uh, South Carolina has a couple of versions of this where two or three holes play different from one version to the next. Um, do I see myself doing it a lot? No. Because again, in the at the end of the day, it's my job to figure out I like this way better than that way. But do I like playing around with new things? And especially when I can't decide which one I like better? Sure. Why not? So if you did this for an entire course, you would need to have effectively two greens or two hole locations. You could I guess you could do it with bigger greens and have well, like- that. Side, the other like one I sides, forgot to right? mention was that weird renegade course at Desert Mountain they built 30 years ago, which had every hall either had two small greens or one giant green with two flags on it that you could choose your own adventure. And that was interesting. But again, my you know, my takeaway from that was like clearly some halls were more interesting if you played the shorter tee and the harder pin, and some of those halls were too hard the harder pin was just too hard for 90% of people and you had to play the easier pin. And, you know, why didn't they just decide to do that instead of having the two options on every single hole? 
I think the other thing that it would do is it re- reduces a, a, over like if you did it over and over again, it would reduce the importance of like the tee shot and positioning because you could hit your tee shot and then kind of decide, right? <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> it's like, well, I, I hit it over here, so I'm going over here, right? Or the approach shot if there's two flags on the green. <laughs> or you, yeah, exactly. You could hit a really bad, you could hit such a bad approach shot that it was good, right? So I think that's where it kind of falls apart for like a lot. But I do like the idea of one time, it's it's like everything, like uh, in small doses, right? I think it would be hard to do for 18 holes is, is my thoughts though on, on just in general. It would be pretty hard to do. Oh, another example of it in Japan, Two, you know, all those old courses, they built two greens on every hole for agronomy reasons. Yeah. And sometimes the combinations don't work there very well. You know, you have a lot of holes that just, they look the same because it's like a two-headed monster. It's really hard to come up with 18 optional greens that look different from each other. It's easy to do it once or twice on a golf course. It's really hard to do it multiple times. It's also much easier on par threes than it is on par fours. You know, when you get to a par four or par five with alternate greens, you know, it does. It looks like a two-headed monster because you've got, you got to have fairway going into both. With a a par three, you really don't. Yeah, your your turf budget too would go through the roof, right? Right. Um, All right, uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, Sand Valley golf courses. Uh, Obviously, you were part of recreating the Lido um, and then you have now 18 holes of Sedge Valley completed, grassed, been playable. Um, what were your big takeaways? You had your Renaissance Cup out there from just watching people play Lido. Well, I should ask what were yours because you played. Um, for me, the biggest takeaway was, you know, I didn't really think much about the strategy of some of those holes while we were building the golf course because that wasn't my job. You know, we were trying to recreate it exactly as it was. So we were following a model and I, you know, I wasn't thinking about the playability or, you know, plus most of the holes are template holes, which you think, you know, pretty well, you know, you've seen lots of versions of them, but going out there and watching the matches in the Renaissance cup or playing with some of the better players on the second day, you know, just informally, uh, after I lost early <laughs> in the competition, um, I was really amazed how many contours there were in the fairways to like steer balls into certain spots or or make it tougher. You know, if you drove it over here, you're in a rumply little area or the ball just steered away from the good line of attack to the green. And you know, it finally dawned on me. McDonald spent a lot of time thinking about all those little ridges in the fairways. They're not random. They look kind of random, but they're all thought out for like getting a golf shot into position. And the the one that impressed me the most, you know, Mike McCartan worked for us for years, good player. And his his brother played college golf at Duke. So they were they were, I thought they'd be a really formidable team, but they lost in like the second round of the match. So I, I went out and played. there are a lot of good, there are a lot of good players out there. I got to say a lot of good players. <laughs> like, and so I so, lost in the second round and and we played well, we, we just got beat. Yeah. So 
Eric and I played nine holes with the two of them and a couple other people uh, in the afternoon after we were eliminated. And, you know, Mike's brother hits it really far, like all college players do. And he was trying to hit it over the bunkers on 15, but also way left to get the angle into the green. With that and right, with that right he, pin, right? Yeah. Those are the he, day, yeah. He, right. So he didn't do it. He, he, he hit it in the bunker. But as I was watching after hitting my second shot, I went over to watch him. And I noticed on the far side of all those bunkers, there's a contour in the fairway that if you can keep it close to that left bunker, you can kind of steer it way to the left instead of having to carry all of that last bunker. And I thought, holy hell. I mean, he put that in deliberately in 1918 for a guy who was going to carry it 300 yards. Or maybe it was for somebody's second shot. <laughs> but whatever it was, it's like, that's that's not just an accident. That's there for a reason. And I can tell you, I've built a lot of golf courses. I've never thought that much about putting little extra conchers into the fairways. And neither did McDonald. You know, every other course he built, there was a lot of cool stuff there. And he just used it the same way we always do. But when he had nothing to start from, he spent a lot of time thinking about those details and embarrassing, you know, I'm, I'm kind of humbled by it. It's like, well, I'm not spending enough time on this project or that project. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think um, my takeaways, I, I had played it once before the event. And then I think I played it four times or three, three or four times during the event. Um, and the first time you play it, you're, you're very, disoriented and i think this is like just an interesting topic in general about golf design and 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 how a lot of people will only play the a, a golf course like at a resort one time right and the first time you play Lido, you're kind of like what's going on you don't see a lot of stuff because there's significant blindness and you're right. you hit into these spots and you don't know where the right place is and the wrong place is um you know, yeah, with, it, it is like the old course at St. Andrews in that you need a caddy to tell you what to aim at. Yeah. You can't really tell from the tee. And, a lot of and where to aim is different based off of how far you hit it. Right. right. If you're hitting you it 220. picks up your game after a couple holes and tells you where you should aim. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a, a hit it here for everyone type situation. No. What I thought was really fascinating, and I talked to Peter Flory about this, is... I believe that the golf course, everybody thinks it's very, very hard. And I do think for a player that can hit good shots, once you understand the course, it actually becomes fairly easy because you can get yourself, there's enough space out there that you can get yourself into positions where you're hitting in shots into greens where like all the contours help you. And it's just this giant chess match. And I talked to another person who's a member who's a really good player about this and he's like yeah every time i play it it becomes like a little bit easier because of like i know i need to get over here for this pin it's like a perfect example of what you're talking about with 15 getting the ball like you get the pins on the this is a, it's like a shorter it's like a medium like par four and there's a the right side of the green's protected by a really deep bunker and and if you hit a driver and you have like a 60 yard wedge you have no chance from the right 
you have to get over to the left. You're not going to hit it close from the right side. So you have to get it over left. And you just know, and then you see when the pin's on the left side, you're like, okay, I can just blast this up the right. And then I have a little bit of help. So I think like what's interesting about the golf course is, is how a golf course can go from like the first time you play it, you're like, wow, that's really intense, really hard to more and more you play it, the more and more achievable and impossible it seems. Does that make sense? Yes. I'd add that, you know, there's two things about it that, that really help make it like that and make it a little more complicated still than you're saying. One is, you know, the surface is really firm and fast and the bunkers are really deep. And that's why on 15, you know, on a normal American course, it doesn't matter if you're hitting over the bunker into a big green, you just hit seven iron over the bunker and it plops down on the green and stops. And nobody would be afraid of that at all. But the conditions on that golf course, at least for now, and hopefully they can keep them that way. You cannot afford to do that. The bunkers are too deep. You really don't want to miss in them or or play it too close to the edge of getting over. And then even though the green's big, it's hard as a rock. And trying to get it to stay on the green, flying it over a bunker at an angle is not any guarantee unless you're a damn good player. So you kind of have to find the angles and give yourself, you know, some approach in front of the green instead of flying it over a greenside bunker. But then the other thing is it's windy and the wind comes out of different directions there. So you can figure it out for yourself on a calm day, but then when the wind's blowing 20 miles an hour, it's like, no, all right, today I can't do that. I got to think about going back to this instead. So I don't think it'll get boring. You know, you'll you'll definitely figure out more, but you'll still have decisions to make because you're not going to see it under the same conditions three days in a row. Well, I think that's what the fascinating thing about it is, is when you know where you need to go and it see, you know, it's very wide, but then it becomes very narrow, right? Like you are trying to push it into these little spots because you know, you get such a big advantage if you can get it there. And every one of those little spots, you have to take on something you don't want to take on and you know where you can bail and then you hit these shots and you bail and you're like, oh, no, I can't believe I'm here. Next time I play it, I really want to play it with uh, like uh, pick up a, hi- a set of the hickories from the clubhouse and play it with that. That's like kind of my next next time around there. I'm going to play hickories and just see how great. I mean, that that's the thing is like the idea of that golf course existing in 1918 is is absolutely like I just don't know how people got around it. Or you could be like me and get old and just play like you're playing with hickories with really good modern equipment. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to do that anytime soon. Um, okay. <laughs> Matt Schoolfield had a, a question that I thought was, uh, you know, uh, prescient with Lido. Uh, what are some of your personal contrasts between the work at old Mac and the Lido um, in creating a CB McDonald homage like you did at old Mac? Where do you see your own influence versus trying to channel mcdonald um and did you try and restrain your own influence in one er one areas of the lido that were up to interpretation we very much tried to restrain our own influence at the lido i was just trying to build the golf course as best i could you know it's like a restoration but a restoration where you had to start from scratch so it's way more complicated 
You know, you don't, there's nothing that you just leave alone. Although the computer model did produce some things that it was just like, yeah, that looks exactly right. That looks like all these pictures. We don't need to tinker with that at all. But there were, there. the main thing was there were some other greens. Some of the greens were flatter looking than my impression of most of McDonald's golf courses. And so I asked Peter Flory right away, you know, how, how sure are you about the contours? You know, how strongly do you feel that you got them right? And he said, honestly, that's probably the weakest part of the model. It's very hard to tell from a bunch of photos how, you know, if that contour three inches high or six inches high, because um, you don't see it um, except under extreme shadows or something like that. And so he really encouraged us just to wing it. But on the, by the same token, you, you have the client who prefers greens that are kind of big and with big flatter areas in them. So there was there was some tension there, but we, you know, we tried to be just as faithful as we could to what we thought the McDonald greens would have looked like. And, you know, I did assume that Peter doing it for kind of a video game version the first time, you know, the video game is set up so the greens roll really fast. So you're going to make the greens kind of flat to deal with that. And obviously the Lido built in 1918 was not built for greens that run at 11 or 12 or whatever a computer game version of it would run at. So that would just mean, you know, the contours were a little more amped up probably just to have the same kind of breaks on pots that you wanted it to be. Um, you know, for old McDonald, completely different philosophy there. You know, what we were doing was just approaching the design the way Charles Blair McDonald would. Okay, where's the best place to put a road hole? And we want to get the essential features of the road hole right. And what other little features do we have out here to make this one give this kind of a character of its own? The other thing that was cool about old McDonald. You know, other than the Lido, which I never thought would come back, McDonald never built anything that was remotely like a Lynx course. All the, all, nearly all the templates were from Lynx holes overseas, nearly all of which I've seen. So instead of thinking about the Seth Rayner version of the road hole or the Redan or whatever, you know, we thought a lot more about the real ones yeah. because we were really familiar with them. And so was Charles Brown McDonald. So it really looks different. It, it, you know, the bunkering looks more linksy, even though we didn't do any like revetted faces. Um, but it's not, you know, the flashy bunkering that we do a lot. It's not just the, the straight banks like the Lido has and like your typical McDonald course has. But if you look at early pictures of the National, they had a bunch of different looking bunkers. They even had some things that had like sleepered faces originally on a couple of the holes. So we did that at Old McDonald too. Mm -hmm. uh, those, Jim Urbina put those in. Those are some of the coolest bunkers out there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff. I, you know, I was, uh, I, I've been thinking through in my head uh, what, what Alps hole is is uh i prefer whether it's uh lido or uh or old mcdonald just one th little thing we did a dream 18 recently on on sand valley 
um, on this podcast. And, uh, and we were, I was just talking through Alps holes and I was like, Oh, Lido's, you know, probably one of the best ones along with like national golf links. And, and then somebody commented about, about forgetting old McDonald. And I was like, ah, oh, that's, that's a great Alps hole. Yep. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. And uh, big thanks to Matt Ruches for editing and uh, producing this podcast. A quick reminder, if you, you know, we're in that holiday time period, a great gift is Club TFE. Uh, it is $120 for the entire year. And uh, really, we're putting up, you know, a bunch of content in there, uh, a, a new newest feature in the last three months we you know or so we we put out every monday a design notebook it just kind of like covers you know stuff that we've seen recently as well as news in the world of golf course architecture um this week i compared uh old barnwell and uh the tree farm two new golf courses in aiken that uh that i've seen and uh just talk about what each is each does really well so Design Notebook comes out every Monday. Uh, we have course profiles every week and much, much more. Thank you guys to whoever is a member. Uh, it's been really great to build that community and, uh, and interact with it throughout the year. And those that are on the fence, this is a great time to do it around, uh, around the holidays. Uh, $120 and it, it, all that goes to supporting what we're doing on a, on a year-end basis. So to join, go to thefriedegg.com and then there's a Club TFE button right at the top of the screen. All right, we'll be back later this week with another edition of the Yoke with Doke. And thank you. Thank you.